They arrived again in Jerusalem. While Jesus was walking through the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of law came, and the elders came to him and asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And he asked, who gave you this authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptisms, was it from heaven or from human origin? Tell me. They discussed her among themselves and said, if we say from human, I mean from heaven, <laughs> they'll ask, he'll ask, why don't you believe him? But if we say from human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone of the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Thanks, guys. Well, Dale already told you, but those are... Oh, okay. That was nice of you. <laughs> Kellen and Jack Skill, my kids, I am a mom of teenage boys, and I know that teenagers get this really bad rap sometimes, but I just want you to know I love having teenagers. I love teenagers. I love hanging out with them. I love hanging out with their friends. I love your teenagers. Like, I just love teenagers. They are so so opinionated, and they are just always messing up, and they are pushing against boundaries, and yet they are coming into their own, and it is pretty incredible to be able to watch them do that. So I'm a mom of teenagers. I'm also married, many of you know, to a guy named Adam, and I have a couple things I just want to share about Adam that I think are really um, helpful in what we're looking at today. So first of all, Adam is the best athlete that I know for real. Okay, so what I mean is like, I don't know Steph Curry, but I feel like I do because I follow him on Instagram. But in real life, I know Adam, and he is the best athlete that I know in person. He just, it's God gifted. He has this ability to just succeed at every physical thing he tries and not just like, oh, he can do it. He's really good at it. And so as his wife, it's really um, kind of annoying at times because I like to think of myself as someone who can hold her own. But when it comes to athletic one-on-one -on -one competition with my husband, I cannot. And so it's, um, it's fair to say that both Adam and I really enjoy um, being the winner. And so we know, like when we're on a court, there's generally some 
strong, um, intense conversations that happen between us, whether it's a pickleball court or a basketball court or a ping pong table. Um, we just, that's part of who we are. But that is not the point. The point is Adam is an amazing athlete. The second thing I want you to know about Adam is he is a man who when he sets his mind to something, he does not give up. So he goes full force after it. It becomes one track, full fat, passion, focus, everything. And there are a million stories about how that plays out in our life on an everyday basis. But I want to share a story that ironically is before I even knew Adam. So Adam and his best friend back in middle school, they decided that they were going to win a state championship for their high school. Now, Adam comes from a town in upstate New York of about 6,000 people, so this really tiny town, but he and his buddy were like, we're going to do this. Okay, so they are like, other kids are sleeping in till noon on a summer day. Adam and his buddy are out at the field, not like a soccer field, but like the field you find in a small town. So they're out on the field, and they're like doing their work and their skill work and cardio and strength training and all those things, and they're just pushing each other, and then the school years will come, and maybe one of them gets a little bit too connected to a girlfriend, and so the other buddy will be like, just remember, that's not our focus. So they're like super just going after this idea, like over and over, encouraging each other, this is what we're going after, we're going to win the state championship. Fast forward to fall of 1996, so if you could do the math on how old we are, but fall of 1996, this is Adam's senior year in high school. And he and his buddy begin this season, and it is a magical season. That's the kind of season where you don't lose and where no one gets injured, and they keep winning, and they're winning, and they win their little division thing in their league, and then all of a sudden they find themselves winning regionals, and before they know it, they are facing off in a championship, state championship game. And without giving you all the details, I will tell you that on that very cold November day, snowy day in upstate New York, Adam and his friend and the rest of the team brought home the first and only state championship in soccer to Haverling High in Bath, New York. And that, no, you don't need to clap. No, 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 no. We don't don't need to clap for that. Um, My point is, if if I could tell you all of the little details, it would be one of those things where you are just like, wow, this is drawing me in. This is a story because there's something so incredible about the act of pursuit. It's something that we like, that we're drawn to. We see it in movies, and we see it in politics and in romance. We absolutely see it in sports. It's part of why we like watching the Olympics so much, because we see the stories and the passion and the drive. There's something about watching someone go after something with incredible focus and passion. And today we're going to see that in our story, right from Scripture. We're going to see God's relentless pursuit of his creation and his consuming passion to reconcile and to restore and his never-ending love for us, his people. Let me pray for our time together this morning, and then we'll jump in. God, I'm so thankful for your church, for your church the whole world over that over the last 24 hours has been gathering together to praise and proclaim your name. Thank you for this church right here in Los Gatos, for Calvary and this family. Would you be with us this morning? Would you, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would it be your words and not mine? And, and would you just allow us to learn from each other? 
We pray all these things in the mighty and matchless and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as a church, we have been looking at the book of Mark over the last 15 months, off and on. And we have spent this summer looking at the six chapters of Mark that take up the final three weeks of Jesus' life on earth before he goes to the cross. And a few Sundays ago, we entered into that final week before the cross, and we call it Holy Week, and there's a couple things that I want you to remember about it. We know that on Sunday of this week, Jesus came in riding on the back of a borrowed donkey with his disciples to Jerusalem to much celebration and joy. Do you remember what that was? Palm Sunday. Okay, you're with me? Yeah, okay. Palm Sunday, and then a couple of days later, we see him in the temple complex, and he's throwing out anyone and everyone who's doing business there. And then he gets into this conversation with the Jewish leaders, and that's what Rob started to talk about with us last week. All of that is important to remember so that we know where we are at in God's overarching story. Now, a few weeks ago, Dale talked about the temple scene, but I want to revisit it just for a minute because I think it's really hard for us as 21st century Americans to really understand what it would have felt like to be the Jewish leaders in that situation. It's kind of like this. If you had rented a house, and you know that you're renting the house, you don't own it, but you're the caretaker of it, and so let's say you live in that house for a decade, and after a decade, you're like, it's time to paint the walls. So you paint the walls. And then maybe another decade goes by, and you're like, you know what? i got to do the landscaping. So you do the landscaping, and then another decade, and you're like, time for a kitchen remodel. So you tear out the cabinets, and you do all this, and then maybe you live there another 10 years. And so you've been here 40 years, and you barely see the owner. And then one day, the owner shows up, and he looks at what you've done, and he's shocked. And rather than having a conversation, he just walks right into your house, your house, and he begins to repaint the walls back to what they originally were. And he tears down the wall you would put up, and he takes out the cabinets, and, and all the while you're just looking at him, and you're angry because how dare he? This is your house. This is where you've been living. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it helps us have a mindset of where the Jewish leaders would have been at in that moment, a place of what is going on here, because these Jewish leaders watched Jesus invade their place, this place that they had been tasked to care for. And so as Rob talked about this last week, this act by Jesus, it infuriated the Jewish leaders because both socially and within Jewish religion, they were the ones with authority. They had the authority to care for God's temple They were the ones with the foremost religious authority of Jewish tradition and law. It was their job to care for and teach the people, to expound on matters of interpretation and observance and purity, meaning what happened in the temple was their business. And yet, whether they realized it or not, they had taken their role and twisted it from authority to caretake and teach the people into authority to control the people. So the Jewish leaders, they have been watching Jesus for three years. They've heard and seen him exert authority over so many things, over nature, over disease, over the spiritual world, taking it as far as forgiveness of sin. And they have been frustrated. They've had conversations with him 
Where is your source of power coming from? Why are you eating with the tax collectors? But it was that act in the temple when Jesus dared to exert his authority there that we see the tipping point. And the tipping point brings the question that the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders have been dying to ask. We saw this last week in Mark eleven twenty eight. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority to do that? Now, last week we got started in this conversation and Rob talked to us about the back and forth that was happening and Jesus kind of being Jesus was like, I'll ask you a question first. And then the Jewish leaders were like, oh, that's a hard question, so we're not going to answer. Then Jesus said, I'm not going to answer you either. And that's where we stopped last week. But that is not the end of the conversation. That's the end of chapter 11, but it's not the end of this conversation that Jesus is having I hope you had a chance to take our biblical literacy course. One of the things that we talk about really early on is that the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. It wasn't until the 13th century that an archbishop came in and put chapters in, and then it was another 350 years after that before it was printed with chapters and verses. Admittedly, it is a super helpful organizational tool for all of us. And it can create some confusing situations because chapters and verses do not always correspond with the end of a sentence or the end of a story or the end of a conversation. And so what we're looking at today is a great example of that. I know Kellen and Jax read this a few minutes ago, but I'm going to read part of this again. So we are in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables... A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then they sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed." He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved, and he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Whoa, like this story. There's so much here, and there's so many ways that we could go, and it would be so fun to spend five hours together, but we're not, and so I want to focus on what I think is the most intriguing aspect of this story, which is the unwillingness of the owner to give up, even to the point of laying down his own son. As you probably gathered earlier, because I, you met my kids, and I talked about Adam. I live in a house full of boys. And so adventure and action and like physical feats and broken bones and stitches, like those are all part of our, our, just our regular rhythm. It's our life. And this passage is one of those things. Like it has all that stuff in it. Um, It kind of like pulls you in like a movie would. It starts out really just like peaceful and lovely with the vineyard. And then pretty soon you can see the good guys and the bad guys emerge. And it's fast paced and there's action. And you're like 
just, I just feel so like utter audacity at the tenants and the way that they're responding. And then right when you think the good guy's going to swoop in and save the day, he does something totally unexpected. And I think that if we were watching this as a movie, we would get to that point and we would be thinking, what what is happening? Vineyard owner, what are you thinking? This is not what you should be doing. This doesn't make any sense. Why would you send your son? Obviously, any story that Jesus tells us has something a little bit deeper. Mark 12, 1, started by saying this, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. Jesus used parables a lot in his ministry on earth. He used them to teach and to instruct and to push people outside of their usual way of thinking. And in the gospel, we find at least 30 parables that Jesus uses in his ministry on earth. And sometimes they were easy to comprehend, and a lot of times they really weren't. And sometimes Jesus explained them, and a lot of times he didn't. But Jesus was a storyteller, and parables were a huge part of how he told stories. There's a book, Jesus Through the Middle Eastern Eyes, and the author Kenneth Bailey says this, Christians too often understand Jesus as a simple man telling simple tales to children. We see him as the perfect example of love, the agent of salvation, the word made flesh among us, all of which is true. But he's also a theologian once you see him as a metaphorical theologian rather than a conceptual theologian. Metaphorical theology creates meaning through story, symbol, and metaphor, and then you can extract ideas from it, and a parable is a way to create meaning. Parables are these things that are used, stories to illustrate truth, and you might think about it a little bit like this. If I invited you over to my house, um, you would come in and we would have dinner at my table and we would probably sit and chat on my super cozy couch and you would look at the pictures on my walls and you might even use my bathroom, which I will have cleaned earlier because teenage boys would be sharing it with you and um, hopefully you would feel so comfortable in my home and you would gain a greater standing of who I am just by spending a few hours with me and my family in the place that we live. And you would be so welcome there, and I would love having you, and you would not be meant to live there permanently. Parables are really the same way. Jesus doesn't mean for us to live in the literalness of the parable, but instead he invites us in and he says, come sit a while in a different space, and gain a different perspective that comes from doing that. So while Jesus may not have always explained his parables, he absolutely always knew who his audience was. He always knew who he was talking to. And right now, he's talking to the Jewish leaders. These are the men who held the priestly offices. They composed the Sanhedrin. These guys knew scripture. It was their actual job to know scripture. So as Jesus begins this parable, he's describing a vineyard, and immediately the Jewish leaders would have known this is really similar to a prophecy of God's judgment on Israel known as the song of the vineyard. That's found in Isaiah 5. This is what Isaiah 5 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. 
Hopefully that sounds familiar. If we look at the second part of Mark 12:1, it says a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Same words, vineyard planted, wine press dug, watchtower built. And the people that Jesus is talking to, they know it. The allegory of a vineyard was a really familiar symbol for the nation of Israel. And so the Jewish leaders would have immediately understood the scene that Jesus was painting for them. He's reminding them through both scripture and story that God is the master and the owner of the vineyard. He's the one who meticulously worked to create something beautiful and purposeful. He describes how there's a pit beneath the wine press to gather the juice, a watchtower for shelter and storage, a wall for protection. Every decision about this vineyard depicts the owner's desire to make this a place that would support growth and life and purpose. It sounds like an incredible vineyard, but what Jesus is describing is so much more than that. In fact, in that one half of a verse, Jesus is telling the story of creation. How he came in at the very beginning and set up everything perfectly for growth and for life and for purpose. And then in Genesis 1.31, he declared that it was good. Now, we know that the story of creation doesn't end there in perfect harmony. Instead, God's creation becomes marred with sin. But rather than abandoning it altogether, we begin to see God engage in pursuit. Mark 12, verse 1, ends by telling us that the owner rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So God's creation had gotten messed up, but as the parable reflects, God has a plan, and he's chosen a tenant. It's the nation of Israel. They're poised to be a blessing to the rest of God's creation. As they produce the sweet fruit of God's grace, everyone else in the world will be able to see who God really is. Israel has been chosen to be the caretakers specifically for this purpose. Verse 2, at the harvest time, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this would have been expected by the tenants. It was common practice back then that an owner would collect some of the harvest as payment for rent. After all, the vineyard belonged to the owner. The fruit, the land, the harvest, that all belongs to him. And as the owner, he has the authority to collect that. As the owner, everything belongs to him. Verse 3. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. Yikes. I don't want to be in this line, right? You're sitting there, and you're watching the guys ahead of you go, This one comes back all bloody. This one never comes back. It's going on and on. We see what's coming, and it's not going well. And I imagine that at this point in the parable, the Jewish leaders are beginning to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I think at first they could have listened somewhat detached and been like, that's great, Jesus. But as the story unfolds, it would be impossible for them not to know that he is talking directly to them. 
He's reminding them that God has sent prophet after prophet to Israel, messenger after messenger, each one calling God's chosen people to turn from sin, to repent, and to renew the covenant with him to be a light to all nations. And as they're listening, these Jewish leaders who know their history and their scripture so well, it would have been impossible for them not to know how God's prophets had been rejected and rejected. And they would also know that even as those prophets had been rejected, God had not stopped sending them. He continued to pursue his covenant people. Verse 6, the owner had one left to send, a son whom he loved, and he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Now remember how we talked about what this would have been like if we were watching it as a movie. We'd get to this part and we would think, no, do not send your son. Nothing about that makes sense. What are you thinking? If you want to send your employees, I guess that's on you. But why would you send your son? We're all watching this and we see what's coming and it's not a good outcome because we know that sending the son is different. It's not just different because the father loves the son so much, which of course he does. It's different because he's sending him as an extension of himself. And he's coming with the authority, all of the distinct and definitive authority that comes from being the owner. This isn't just a random parable about some tenants. This is the story of God's relentless pursuit to restore the entirety of his creation. Certainly God has been overwhelming in his grace as he sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, but his people have not kept their covenant. And so God has one left to send. And this time it's not just a messenger. Though to be sure, he'll bring God's message, but the one he's sending is Jesus, his son, an extension of himself and coming with all the legal, distinct, and definitive authority that comes with being the owner. John 1 tells us this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. If you're wondering what John is saying here, this is it. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was there at creation, and he is the rightful heir and owner of all of it. And as creation lost its way, God began to lay out his plan for redemption, and Jesus was there too. Jesus was there when God called Abraham into this new land, and he was there when God spoke to Moses in the desert. He was there when he anointed King David, and he was there when he sent prophet after prophet to his people. He was also there when God stopped and stood in silence for 400 years. But the silence was not going to last forever because God would not give up pursuing his people. And this time, 
This time he was going to send his son, his beloved, his co-owner, the one who had been with him from the beginning, the only one that would come with this kind of authority. Verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. By using a parable, Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders the story of God from creation all the way until right then. And make no mistake, because we see it at the end of this in verse 12, they understand exactly what he is saying. The question that they asked, the one we talked about last week that they were trying to trick him into, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus has now answered, I am doing these things with the authority that comes from being the owner, from the rights I have as owner of all this, the temple, the land, the people, you. I am the creator, and it is all mine, and I have authority over it. And because Jesus was there in the beginning, he's not just telling the story of God, he's giving his own autobiography, and he's telling them, you work for me. I chose you to be the caretakers, but I'm the owner, and I am your authority. And then he goes a step further, and he tells him what's, what's coming next, and he says that because of this truth, this truth that I have, I have this authority, and the Father has sent me, because of that, you are going to kill me. It's pretty intense. Jesus knows He's telling his own story. He knows exactly what is about to happen at the end of this week. He knows he's about to go through more pain than he can even understand. He's going to suffer in ways he can't even imagine, and yet he looks directly into the eyes of the Jewish leaders, and he says, I am not changing course. I will lay down everything, everything, in order to provide a way for redemption. I am the owner, and with all the authority that comes from that, I will not stop pursuing my creation. At this point, the Jewish leaders are clear on two things. One, Jesus has just told them that he is the Father's Son, and that's where he gets his authority, by being the owner. And two, they need to stop Jesus. So the Jewish leaders begin to plan in earnest how they will arrest and subsequently condemn and kill Jesus. But what they don't understand is that by doing so, by doing what they think will stop him, they will in fact help Jesus accomplish his entire purpose for coming. That by sending the Father's Son to death, they'll ensure that a way for reconciliation and restoration is complete. As Jesus is concluding this conversation, he moves away from the parable and he once again gives them a glimpse of what is ahead. We see this in verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and he'll kill those tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of the plan for redemption for all of creation. And though God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, may not accept this, 
God's pursuit is not going to stop. And now he's going to open up his grace and his mercy and his unrelenting pursuit for relationship, not just to the Jewish people, but to everyone. In 12 verses, in 12 verses, this is the story of God's relentless, unwavering, never-ending pursuit of us, of you, of me, of my kids and my husband, the guy that cut me off when I was turning in today to the parking lot of the woman condemned in jail and the man who can't get out of bed because of crippling pain and anxiety of your neighbors, of the people sitting next to you right now. There's a Bible for kids, and it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you don't have it, you should get one because it is fantastic in the most simplistic and clear way, it demonstrates how everything in the Bible, everything in God's story, points to Jesus. And it echoes over and over the message that from him and through him and to him are all things. The Jesus Storybook Bible uses a refrain throughout the book that says this, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. This is God's message. I created you. You are mine. I made a way, and I will not give up pursuing you. Jesus, who was always there, the rightful owner alongside the Father, the firstborn over all creation, all authority under heaven and earth given to him. And he invites us into this intimacy with him. When we choose to walk with Jesus, we are grafted into his authority, an authority that's complete and over everything every detail of what's happening in our world, in our town, in your family, in you. Romans 8 says it better than I ever could. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Did you hear that amazing proclamation? We are more than conquerors. We don't just get to participate in victory. We get to be on the side of the one who is overwhelmingly victorious. The opposition is going to put up a fight, but they're going to be no match for our victor. And we are exhorted to be voices of victory, calling people to the one who has already defeated it all. In John 14, 33, Jesus reminds us that in this world there's going to be trouble, but we can take heart because he has already overcome the world. And he invites us in. He invites us in to rest in the peace that comes from that and the victory 
that has already taken place. As we do each week, we are going to spend some time responding. And today we're going to sit before the Lord for a minute, giving him the opportunity to connect with us. At the beginning of the message, we talked about this idea of how parables invite us in to sit for a while and to gain a perspective, to look around and gain some understanding. And so we're going to take a moment to sit. And so right now I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes. And just to concentrate for a minute just on the inhaling and exhaling. Just allow the Holy Spirit to quiet your mind. And as we sit here, would you just take a minute to meditate on these words from Jesus? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And as you meditate on these words right now, would you just consider what's going on in your life? What is bringing you pain or anxiety or confusion? Where is the road uncertain and the questions answered, unanswered? Knowing that Jesus is the owner and authority over everything, what does it look like to lay that down at his feet and hear him respond to you? I am the authority over that too. So let's spend a minute just listening to him. conversation has started between you and the Lord this morning, it does not need to end here. Just as chapters and verses in the Bible do not necessarily mean the end of the story, leaving this space does not mean your conversation with God has to end. Allow him to continue to pursue you and you pursue him as you go through this week. Let this be the beginning of the conversation and not the end.